Welcome to another episode of Latinos Who Thrive. This week, we bring you special guest Sonia Rivera. Sonia is the founder and president of Genesis Consulting, which provides consulting services in the development, implementation, and management of new projects. From educational support programs to small business development projects, the company has expanded into project management with a focus on project evaluation, setting policies, staffing, scheduling, staff development, and training. Sonia's community involvement includes Hispanic Women's Network of Texas, Hispanic Women in Leadership, Latino Learning Center, Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, Board Secretary of the Texas Association of Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, Houston Advisory Board of Hispanic Scholarship Forum, Talento Bilingue, the Houston Cultural Arts Center, and she is the former National President of the National Hispanic Professional Organization. Without further ado, we bring you Sonia Rivera. Sonia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Victor. So, Sonia, I've known you now for about 15 years, and in this time, you've led a very high-profile life in Houston. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in Michigan, and I am the daughter of Mexican immigrant farm workers, and which is how we ended up in Michigan. Pretty humble beginnings, and uh, you know, very, you know, I'm very married to our culture, to the rich Latino culture. I was uh, grew up in a very Mexican household since they were Mexican immigrants, but I I really appreciate my upbringing and the thing, the lessons that I was taught in uh, throughout my my young life. We grew up in a, I grew up in an all Anglo community. When I was around very young, my family chose to stay in Michigan and uh, quit migrating. So I went to schools up north and, and uh, grew up in a pretty Anglo environment. But my family always maintained our cultural roots. So I remember my grandma used to say, "En esta casa se habla español," and uh, and I and I appreciate it now. You know, so outside, you know, I learned English, I learned the language, and learned it well. In school, we didn't have ESL back then. We had you. You know, it was English immersion. So I was, you know, Spanish was my first language, but in, I, right, you know, kindergarten, I learned to speak English and, and I've been able for the most part to maintain my Spanish. Moved to Texas right out of high school. I was always, you know, we didn't have a lot of Hispanics up there, but growing up in, in the Hispanic household, I, I really wanted to be around closer to our cultural roots and engage in, uh, you know, our, the more cultural activities and what was available up there. So I moved to Texas back, I grew up in the eighties. And so, you know, back then MTV was really big. And I remember seeing musicians, you know, in California and on MTV and they're saying, you know, I just loaded up my car and moved to California, not knowing, you know, what I was going to do or where I was going to go. And so I kind of did the same. Um, I actually packed up my car and moved to Louisiana. I had family in Louisiana and uh, stayed there for about nine months and then packed up my car again and moved to Houston. Um, and I've been here ever since. So um, pretty exciting times, pretty scary now that I think about it. But And it was pretty crazy. But, uh, you know, I, I, I've been very blessed with, the, you know, the safety first and foremost. I've been blessed for, you know, God keeping me safe. You know, in my young life, we didn't have cell phones back then to communicate with people and, you know, along the, you know, while you're making that drive. So I literally had to wait until I stopped somewhere to be able to call home and let my family know that I was okay and everything was going well. So, so I do think I've been very blessed in my entire life. When I got to Houston, I, I started waitressing and 
got married very young, had a child, and my uh, my son is now 31. Unfortunately, things didn't work out, and I got divorced at 22 with no skills, you know, outside of high school. And I quickly decided that there's no way that I can support a child on minimum wage, was which was, I think, 325 at the time. Yeah, I know it was not- pretty low back then. <laughs> it was pretty low. And so I said, you know, I can't make this work. I can't pay rent. I can't, you know, feed my child. And so I uh, went back to school and I, I just went through the directory and said, what, you know, what course can I take that's going to take six months where I can start earning money immediately? That's how I decided on a career at the time. It was really out of necessity. But again, I've been very blessed. And eventually, what was your degree in that you got? Psychology. Okay. Ultimately, it was psychology. Okay. But I started out in the substance abuse field. So I did uh, substance abuse for uh, 11 years and worked with AMA. There, I had very, very supportive bosses and administrators that really supported my journey and you know, there's a lot of things along the way that I experienced. It wasn't like everything wasn't just that easy. But, you know, once I went back to school and I got my certification and I started working at AMA, I started growing. I've always been very, I don't want to say I get bored, but once I master a particular skill, then I want to learn more. I don't really, I get bored if I don't keep learning and if I don't keep growing. So I really had great people that that mentored me and supported me in that journey that have allowed me to grow and teach me and mentor me. Did you become a licensed chemical dependency counselor? I came really close and I'm not embarrassed to say that I actually took the test. It's a two-part test. And so I, I passed the written test the first time and you have to take a verbal test, an oral uh, presentation. Correct. And I actually took that twice and did not pass the oral after the second time. I, I at this point I wasn't doing substance abuse counselor as a it's a, called a licensed chemical dependency counselor. I wasn't working in that capacity by that time I took the second one. So I stayed in the field of prevention and I got my my certification in prevention, substance abuse prevention. So it was similar, but different. So okay. I did, I did work in, you can work as an intern. It's very drawn out. So, but I, you can work as, as a substance abuse counselor, as long as you're, what do you call it? Supervised by, by a substance, by an LCDC, which I was. And I did that for many years, as long as, you know, I could, but it, then eventually I moved into the prevention arena and started working with gang youth involved in gangs. So I wasn't necessarily using the LCTC. So it didn't really hurt me that I didn't, that for that reason, I didn't really pursue the licensing at that point. And how long did you work with kids at risk? For over 20 years, because I left Alma at, as I said, I need to continue growing. I need to continue growing and learning. So after 11 years with Alma, I had pretty much plateaued. I had managed the uh, it was at, it was called the Dino Prevention Program, the Barrios Unidos uh, Gang Intervention Program. I had launched a homeless youth shelter. I had worked outpatient substance abuse, residential substance abuse. So at that point, I had pretty much worked my way through all the programs and plateaued, and and I just wanted to keep going. So I started my own nonprofit and corporation in 2009 and proceeded to get my own contracts and do prevention intervention and somewhat gang counseling, but I didn't call it gang counseling because I felt like 
one of the reasons why I wanted to start off on my own, go off on my own is that I feel that when we label some people, you know, some people, when we label an individual, I always worked with youth. So when we label a young person and a, a lot of these kids were gang involved for the majority of them were, when we say, you know, the school has labeled them as a gang member and law enforcement has labeled them as a gang member and their communities have labeled them as a gang member. You have nothing to strive for. Like they, they hit that, they hit that bar and they don't, you know, very few of them overcome that label. And, and so I started, when I started my own programs, I called them positive youth development and really focused on what the strengths were as opposed to what the weaknesses were by assessing these young people and determining what their strengths were, just really focusing on that as opposed to labeling, giving them a negative label. Tell us for our listeners what the acronym AMA stands for. AMA is the Association for Mexican Americans. Okay. All right. So you've been at this for a very long time. In that time, what have you discovered in terms of the Mexican American identity or the Latino identity? that the plus and the minuses that people need to be aware of? I don't see any minuses. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So I think that, you know, I was raised in a very, very strict Mexican household. And I, I remember my grandmother always saying, you know, I wish that, Quiero regresar a mi tierra antes que me muera. I, you know, I wish I could return to, to my home, to my home in Mexico before she died. And she never did, you know, she never did. She made her life in the United States and she never returned to Mexico. But I always remember that her saying that. And I think she left everything that she knew, loved and loved, you know, her family, her friends, her environment. She left everything so that she could bring her family here and have a better life. And this is what I've, I think, I guess, strived so hard to, to I guess, become an overachiever in some ways, because I wanted to, she never had that opportunity. You know, she, she worked so hard and she often worked, you know, multiple jobs and, and um, she, I just, you know, I, I believe that the, the Mexican American experience is, is in, in pursuit of the American dream. And it's not just ours, it's any immigrant families that come to the U.S., you know, are in pursuit of the American dream. And what it is to them is, I, I believe it's it's for everybody, there's that similarity that we just want a better life. We just want a better life for our children. We want to be able to educate our freedom. We want our children to be able to enjoy the freedoms that the United States offers. And so everything that I've done in my life, whether knowingly or unknowingly I've done to preserve the purpose of, of my grandmother bringing her family here. She came over actually in the sixties. And so she had a worker visa received her citizenship through the, through the Reagan administration uh, when uh, she became a U.S. citizen at that point. And all of us are, you know, her children be also became U.S. citizens and subsequently you know, I, I was born here, actually, <laughs> I was born here, but I worked really hard. So I think that the experience is that because I'm first generation born first, yeah, first generation American born that I can still appreciate the struggles. We grew up very poor. We never, we always had enough, but we didn't have a lot. And, and it's amazing. We talk, we talk about it all the time. You know, we say, how we grew up on beans and tortillas and, and, you know, literally we did. And I remember that every summer we had other migrants that would come, you know, come into our town to work the crops 
as we had done before. And we always had a family in our living room. And I remember, you know, stepping over people during the summer. And I'm like, what are we doing? We don't have, you know, we... You know, but my grandmother always found a way to provide shelter and, and food and clothes or whatever people needed. She always found a way to make that happen. And I realized, you know, there's a lot of things that you see or you experience growing up that you don't necessarily understand. And I see those things now. And I think this is why in retrospect, I'm like, this must be why I'm so community minded. This must be why I want to help you know why I want to see people succeed because she worked even though we had very little she worked very hard to to provide for others and and I believe that that's why we've been so blessed in in our lives your grandmother sounds like the kind of person that everybody goes to her funeral is your grandmother still alive <laughs> no she passed away in 2012 but uh, I, I didn't realize at the time, like I said, there was a lot of things I didn't realize at the time. You're just, you know, you're a teenager and not really paying attention. You're just doing what you're told. <laughs> but she was instrumental in uh, taking church to the camps, to the migrant camps, because they were working, you know, seven days a week and didn't sure. always have time to go to church. So she she had arranged for a Spanish. I was raised Catholic and she had arranged for a priest who a Spanish speaking priest to go out to the various camps and do church and, and conduct mass at the various camps throughout the week so that they could still, you know, go to church. That was a major undertaking. So she had a it major. It really was. It really was. She had a major influence in your upbringing and your values. Yeah, she really did. And, and again, you know, I think it's something that as young people growing up, you know, you're you're very focused on who am I? What am I going to do? What's my place in the world? You know, where what am I going to do after high school, after college? And we're so focused on that, that we're not really, you know, paying attention to the values that we, you know, you grow up with these values and you're not really like identifying what those values are, I think for the most part, because we never discussed it. She just did it. And I just did it because I was told to do it, but it, it was a major influence because I think I, I know that that's the way I've, I've lived my life. She never gave up. You know, like I said, she worked very hard. She worked even in the, I remember after I had been in Texas for a while, I called home and I said, uh, you know, I called my grandma and I said, Gassi, you know, what are you up? What are you doing? And she says, no, acabo de llegar de trabajar en la papa, you know, which means she, she had just gotten home from working out in the fields uh, processing potatoes. And I said, what are you doing? She was like at late 60s at this point. I said, what are you doing? You know, it's time for you to like relax, enjoy life. You know, why are you working out there? You don't have to. And she says, no, el día que me muera es el día que descanso. So, you know, she just did, she wasn't someone to just sit around and relax. You know, she work was her, you know, they, it kept her mind busy and, and she was just a really hard worker. So she went instilled that in us. How do you think that influence that she had on you affected your parenting style? That's a whole other avenue, I guess, to explore. Because I know as a young parent, I parented the way I was parented. And it was a very strict very strict household, you know, and, and I don't know if you're familiar, I'm sure you are with George Lopez and he talks about sure. the chancla and you don't talk back. And, you know, we laugh about the boomerang, boomerang chancla that was able to reach around corners and get to you if you were talking back. And, 
you know, assessing your parents. So it was a very strict household. I wasn't allowed to go out to date to, you know, you never talk back. And I was very, I was always a very curious child. And I was always, you know, you because I said so never worked was not a good answer for me growing up. So I got in trouble quite a bit because I asked a lot of questions. I, because I said, so just didn't work for me. And I, I, I would get in trouble because I'm like, just tell me why I don't understand why, like, you know, I was hungry for an explanation. And so I just, so it was, it was, you know, it was a learning curve and my children and I talk about it quite a bit because my son is eight years older than my daughter. So my daughter got the educated me and my son got the parenting that I brought the parenting that I brought to the table was the way I was parented. And then as you, I think as you grow, you mature, you educate yourself, you parent differently according to the needs of the child. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, like any kind of favoritism. I think that children, we need to identify like what the needs of of our children are and parent accordingly. I mean, I I certainly, you know, if somebody would have, when my daughter is also very inquisitive and she's, you know, wants to know why. And I always like really took the time to explain to her, you know, why things happened the way they did or why things needed to be done the way they did. And I also empowered her to make, to trust herself in making decisions with my son, because he was, I was very young. I, you know, it was really like, just do it you know, just do it because this is the way it has to be done. And, you know, when I did relax, as we, as I learned, you know, as I became more educated, things became, I don't want to say easier, but things became more, there was a better understanding. In Houston, as a high profile Latina, you have had a front row seat or have actually been at the podium with a lot of uh, historical milestones for Latinos in Houston. What are some of these mile markers that distinguish Latinos in Houston, do you think? It's kind of, I guess it's kind of tough, Victor, because I, I look at it from, I guess, the world through my eyes is that nothing in life is free and nothing in life is easy, you know, and what's easy is not worth, it's not, you don't appreciate it and not that it's not worth having, but we don't necessarily appreciate it the same way. I think that being raised, it's very difficult for me to generalize like over the years for the entire community, because for one, um, Hispanics or Latinos fall under a huge umbrella. I mean, it, it's something that, you know, we we cannot generalize the Hispanic community into one bucket because we have Cubanos, Puerto Ricanos, Mexicanos, Argentinians, Nicaraguenses, you know, Colombianos, and, and it's just so diverse. We share some similarities, you know, we share the language oftentimes, but, you know, the milestones are different for every population. The milestones for me was my involvement with NHPO. I grew up in a very rural community where we didn't have Hispanics other than those working in the crops. So I grew up not really seeing Hispanic professionals anywhere near me, you know, in my, anywhere in my surroundings, because it was a very small community and the community, the Latino community or Hispanic community that I don't have a preference between Latino and Hispanic, by the way, I know there's parameters. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what the acronym NHPO stands for? So NHPO is the National Hispanic Professional Organization. I was one of the founding members in 2004 you know, was still trying to work my way through college and still working my way through life. 
I got involved with that. It was just a coincidence. I saw pictures on, on the internet. We were barely coming into a time when everybody had computers on their desk. And I found some pictures and I saw that there were some events taking place. And I saw all these Hispanic professionals. And I said, I want to do that. You know, I want to be one of those people. I want to be successful. I want to, you know, maybe have my own business someday, um, and which was not something that I had ever thought I would do because I, you know, from my humble beginnings and not having grown up in, in a big city to where, you know, you see a little bit of everything. That was really my first major exposure to Hispanic businesses that it's like, hey, you too can have your own business. You too can, you know, start and operate your own business and be successful. And, you know, I had never, I hadn't really seen that in the Hispanic. I didn't grow up with Hispanic professionals in my surroundings. So that was pretty significant. That was a turning point for me because I was able to meet through that organization. I really immersed myself in it and and I met a lot of professionals from all walks of life. And it really inspired me to grow and to learn and to keep going. You are listening to Latinos Who Thrive. We'll be right back. This show is sponsored by ETC, Escalante Training and Consulting. Do you need more sales and greater productivity? For more than two decades, Victor Escalante has been training executives and companies in cultural communications, team building processes, sales competency, emotional intelligence, and project management. Find out how ETC is ready to help you by visiting their website at victorescalante.com. And now we continue with our show, Latinos Who Thrive. Now, was that through just the osmosis of hanging out with business owners and being part of a board of professionals, or were you put through some kind of training inside of NHPO to develop that entrepreneurial spirit? No, in the in the founding in the foundation of it, as I said, I was one of the founding members, and it was a very you know we were just getting started, so every everything was like who wants to do what and. You know, I, I've always, like I said, get, I, I want to learn more. I want to keep growing. And I, you know, I just volunteered for stuff and got engaged. And the more I got engaged, I, uh, you know, it became a reality to me. So talk about your development of your entrepreneurial uh, business owner, woman. What was the first thing you did? Well, let me back up just a tiny bit, because I think this is important that when you when you are not surrounded by certain by in, when you grow up within a certain environment, you're it, it's lifting the bar. When we lift the bar for people, they live up to those expectations. When we have low expectations of people, people don't know how to rise above unless you're exposed to it. And that's what that organization did to me. It gave me exposure to something that I was not familiar with. You know, I had a wonderful upbringing, but I, in terms of desiring to be a Hispanic professional, it was something somebody else did, not something that we did. We were humble farm workers and we were just, you know, raising families. We, we, I was not exposed to something different until that organization. So when I did start the business, because I was witnessing that anybody could be a business owner, that anybody could you know, follow their dreams and and nurture those dreams and turn it into a business, a successful business. So the first thing I did, actually, I was asking a lot of questions about how to start a nonprofit, and I didn't really get a lot of answers. 
with my time at AMA, I had been, became really familiar with nonprofits and I also became really familiar with state operations. We were funded by the state for the programs that I worked. And so I did a lot of research. I spent two years researching the, what the structure that I wanted to have. And, you know, I, like I said, I did ask a lot of people, like, how do you start a nonprofit? How do you, you know, what should, what do I need to do? What, you know, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And a lot of people, you know, friends, and I get it now, but friends would say, well, you know, you can, there's classes you can take and this and that. And I just, said, well, I really don't have time. I was still like trying to raise a family and work full time. So I just did the research on my own. And after two years, felt comfortable enough to launch my nonprofit. I got the status through the IRS and the state. And I also started a, an S corporation. I felt that I needed one for, for a particular, for my youth programs, I needed the nonprofit and for the community development type programs. And then for the other things that I wanted to do, you know, it really evolved into consulting work. So I, I did that under the corporation. But these are all things that I learned by meeting people and asking questions and, and doing my research. And thank goodness for the internet, right? Because that's where I got a lot of my information. Yes, that's the new university, the internet. <laughs> yeah. All right. Tell us about some of the work that you're most proud of with some of the youth groups or some of the youth programs that you created. Talk about your success with that. I am very proud of all of it. I, you know, I guess, I guess to keep it short, I, I love the work that I did with the gang, with the kids in, in involved in gangs. I, I loved the prevention work that we did. You know, we, as um, a lot of times when you grow up in a Hispanic household or, or in my case, a Mexican-American household, there was a lot of, you know, as we discussed earlier, parenting and you parent the way you were parented unless you know better. And we don't know, you don't know what you don't know. And so working with the young people that I came across, I, I really applied a lot of my own experiences or empathized based on my own experiences because of a lot of our young people, I, I would say that one of the things I was the most shocked by was uh, in the early years, like in the late nineties that kids, it would ask kids, you know, we, our office was just a mile outside of downtown. If that, I would ask the young people, you know, have you guys been in the tunnels or have you ever walked through downtown? I've always loved downtown Houston. And they would, you know, they had never been out of the East end. They had never been beyond their own barrio. And I, I just think that was so, it was just so incredible to me that, you know, that one can live in this community and never go outside of that community and explore as a young person. And so I, I, we used to take them on field trips downtown and just walk and visit the local parks and, and, you know, talk about the historical context of, of downtown Houston. And it was a, it was a whole new world for them, which was amazing to me that, so it, it taught me that when you live within the confinements of your own community, that you're, you don't grow, your world is as big as that community because of my own experiences again i've always been a big advocate of exposing people to opportunities and i think that's been the foundation maybe because of my young my young life not having really identified or put a name to it but exposing people to opportunities is how they they grow it gives you a choice when we live within the confines of our own community that's all you know that's all you know. And I think life is different, obviously, because we do have the internet now and, and it's, you know, the internet's obviously 
where we get our media, our news, unfortunately, <laughs> but it's, it's the be all and end all. Right. But I believe that exposure nurtures opportunity. And, and so I think if anything, if we can say anything has, has, um, that I can attribute my success to anything is exposing people. And, and I love, um, with, through NHPO, I was involved through 2017. And I, I really couldn't really put a name to what I was doing because I've always um, enjoyed putting people together. It's like, hey, um, you're a real estate agent. Let me introduce you to a friend I know that, you know, maybe buying a house pretty soon or just being that connector, that bridge, that uh, connecting the dots for people. Have you run into any of those kids that are now grown up and that somehow credit your work with them to turn their life around or to look at their big success? I actually have, you know, I actually have. And and sometimes, you know, some kids don't make it out of the neighborhood or don't make it out of, you know, these negative situations, but some kids do. And sometimes you wonder, like, it's so... I don't want to say exhausting, but it, it takes an emotional toll. I mean, I did do it for 20 years plus, and it does take an emotional toll eventually. And, uh, but as you know, one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had is when kids um, find me. And, and sometimes it amazes me because I'm like, how did you find me? Like, you know, and it's really obviously the internet again, you know, they just Google me and I guess I turn up somewhere, but I did have one young man that I worked with since he was nine years old and this was a, several years ago, but I had worked with him since he was nine because his brother was, had been involved in gangs. So I just knew the young man through um, association and later he ended up getting in trouble and, you know, I think he was about 13 and, and I actually worked with him for, through, through his 18th you know birthday and he aged out of the system, but I lost track of him because it was when I went off to start my own company and Years later, his his mom reached out to me and she said, you know, invited me to to his uh, college graduation. And I said, wow, that's amazing. You know, it's and this young man like really went through a lot just to get through high school. So the fact that he went to college and graduated was incredible, but he was determined to succeed. When I went to his college graduation, I just, you know, so proud of him. And I said, yeah, I just, you know, you went through so much to get here. I'm so proud of you. And, and it was interesting because when we all went to eat, his parents involved me to the graduation and I went and, and then they invited me to eat and, and he wanted to ride with me. And I said, well, don't you, it's such a big moment for you. You know, don't you want to ride with your parents? And he said, no, I really want to talk to you. I said, okay. So we were riding out to, to go get something to eat. And I said, I'm just, you know, again, I'm so proud of you. And he said, you made this happen. So you did it. You made this happen. You know, I just was supportive of you. He said, no, he said, all I could think about all through school, every time I wanted to give up was you telling me, you know, keep your eye on the prize, never give up. You have to graduate, you know, don't give up. And I just, it was just amazing to me that he never forgot our conversations, you know, and, and there were so many times that I thought he wasn't going to even make it through high school, but, and the fact that he was you know, his perseverance paid off and, and that I had a small part in that was, was just the most rewarding experience. That has to be extremely rewarding. Talk to us about what you're currently doing in your professional life, Sonia. It's an evolution. <laughs> it's a constant evolution. I wear a lot of hats. I am currently, I've done politically, political consulting most recently, I've been involved in politics for about 15 years as a, as a supporting player, you know, walking and block walking and making phone calls and just, you know, getting the word out for, for people that I knew were running. 
You've really also bad. been a candidate, so don't be shy about saying that you ran for office. Yeah. So yeah, well, through all those experiences, I, I took the plunge. And and you know, the more you learn, the more you grow, the more you start seeing the world through different eyes, right? You get a little, you earn a little bit of wisdom, I guess, through the years, and you see the world through different eyes. And I just think that I we are so on uh, we are so unre- underrepresented in Houston the Latino community overall as a whole not just Mexican the Mexican American community but as a whole and I just really wanted to see us rise above that you know all of my experiences through the years have led up to running for office and and unknowingly because it was never something that I thought I would ever do but I you know it's like at, at some point I get tired of hearing people say well that's the way it's always been and I just can't, I, it, Michoka, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we, the, just because that's the way it's always been, doesn't mean that's the way it always has to be, you know, and if nobody stands up and steps up to the plate, then it is always going to be like that, but don't come from a place of complacency. I, I'm a doer um, and I'm not okay with that's the way it's always been. And I just had to step out of my comfort zone and, and take the plunge. And I actually did really well. Comparatively, I, I had very little money, almost nothing, and I came in third in a in a pool of eleven candidates. So in a citywide race, so it was I was pretty I was pretty proud of that. I learned a lot more. I you know you think you know everything, and and you learn that you don't know anything. <laughs> so I learned that you know to meet people where they're at, and we live in a political climate where there's a lot of animosity from one party to the other, and I really think that we need to start looking beyond the party and looking at who can do the job. It's given me even more passion to work with communities on a deeper level, as if you could, right? But on a deeper level and really talking to people about why we make the choices that we have, that we make. What does that mean to work with people on a deeper level? I think that, so for, for example, like politically, we tend to vote for a name, the Latino community. We tend to work, vote for a name, la vecina, la comadre the person that my child went to school with and, you know, because we want to be supportive, but we have to look beyond that. And is this the person that's qualified to do the job? Now, what qualifies you to do the job? Some kind of basic knowledge of the operations of the jobs that you're looking for, right? I look at it as a job interview when you're running for office. It's like, what are the qualifications that you bring to the table to meet the needs of this particular job? And we don't really do that enough. And so really what I wanted to do, or what I've had the opportunity to do, I'm now working as a grassroots engagement director for the Libre Initiative, and we're new to Houston. We are located uh, statewide. What we do here is grassroots engagement. So what that means is what is it that we need to provide for our communities to lift them up, to empower them, to give them the resources that they need so that they can make the best decisions for their families. And that's what I mean at a deep, deeper level is like we have to meet their needs and base so that we can educate them on what the, what the issues are that are impacting their communities. You know, it's like, you don't have to tell everybody who you're voting for, but you know, at least know what they're, what they're about, know their voting history, know their, you know, just because somebody comes out to your community and takes pictures with you does not make them a good candidate. Just because somebody you know, grew up with your child does not necessarily make them a good candidate. Let's talk to these candidates and and hear what are they passionate about? Where do they stand on the issues? If they're already elected officials, how have they voted? What is their voting history? I'll give you a really good example. When unaccompanied minors have been here for well over, forever, 
I mean, I, when I was working with AMA, I, we used to go do workshops with unaccompanied minors and they were living at, there was a facility with Catholic charities and they were minors, you know, so they had to, somebody had to take them in and they came, you know, crossed over on their own independently of anybody else. So they didn't have family members here, but we, you know, so we would go in and provide education and resources to these young people. This is like back in the early nineties. So fast forward to, you know, just a few years ago, and we had this big um, to do with unaccompanied minors. And the phrase was babies in cages. Well, you know what? It's like all of these minors have to be cared for at some level. You know, they have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to go here in the U.S. They, you know, the places that they came from, nobody knows where necessarily where they're from or what their family structures over there. So they're, you know, they're, they're kind of like the most vulnerable to some extent of, of our population. Now, obviously there's a spectrum, there's older minors and there's young minors, but this has been happening for, you know, since, like I said, the early nineties that I know of, and I'm sure that it's taken place way before that. But last year in the media, you know, there was sensationalism and the pictures, and I'm not saying these things weren't happening because they are. But what I'm saying is that our elected officials did nothing about this issue. It's always been an issue, but there was nothing done in the last 20 years, 30 years, just that I'm aware of. So how is it possible that because it's in the media, it has to be addressed like just a couple of years ago? In my opinion, this is an issue that needed to be addressed for years ago, years ago. But now because there's media attention and, and people can get photo ops and go stand, you know, chain themselves to, to offenses and, and, you know, this stunts in my, you know, for lack of a better word, that were being pulled by by various politicians. It's like, why didn't you do anything about this 20 years ago? Why didn't you ever bring the raise the issue, you know, 20 years ago? So in my opinion, when I elect, when I go vote for, for an individual, I look at their history. I want to know, like, why are you doing this? Because it's popular to do something now. Why didn't you bring this problem up years ago? You know, what bills have you written to to address this issue? You know, not everything's going to get passed, but have you tried to address this this issue? And so, this is what I'm I'm kind of really passionate about right now is informing our communities on who people are, and it's not attacking their them, an individual or a candidate or an elected official as a person. It's attacking the policies, attacking the decision making that has taken place or that we believe will take place. Or are these people going to align with what's important to us and vote for the person that best represents you? Okay. Let me ask you this question since we veered off into the politics of your business. If you could go back in time and give some useful advice to 20 year old Sonia. What advice would you give her based upon your life's journey, based upon all the experience that you've accumulated? What advice would you give her? Definitely to get engaged sooner. There's so many things that I, you know, I was, it was later in life that I discovered politics or that I discovered community engagement. It, you know, I was late twenties, early thirties. And I think I'm, you know, I always see young people coming out of college or high school, you know, and, and I really, really try to, to connect them to, to the things that I'm doing and educate them on the things that I'm doing and giving them the resources and and the skills, 
you know, to go after these things because they're so important. So I think if anything, I wish I would have been exposed to everything I'm doing now 10 years earlier because it was really my late 20s and early 30s. Other than that, you know, I believe that holistically, I, I think that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. You know, I have a lot of faith in God and I believe that I've been placed in in this place in my life for a reason at this time. I don't think that there's any mistakes. I think that, you know, I, I believe that I needed to learn the lessons that I learned along the way to keep going. And I learned them when at the time that I was supposed to learn them so that I could do what I do now. So I really don't have a lot of regrets. Okay. And what advice would you give to others that are listening to this interview as far as what they need to do in order to be that person that continues to reinvent themselves, regardless of what happens in their life, regardless of what life throws at them, what advice would you give them? You have to keep going. Don't ever give up. You have to keep going no matter what. Don't dwell on things too long. You know, life passes you by very quickly. It's a, you know, life is a journey and and it's a fantastic journey. Just you know, keep going and persevere. You know, if you fall down, dust yourself off and get back up. And, you know, you can give yourself a day to dwell on it and have a little pity party. But the next day, get up, fix yourself up and get out the door and, you know, just go at it again because it, life is full of ups and downs. We all fall. You know, there's no one out there that has not failed at some level or another. We all fall down, but we have to get back up and give it another shot. You know, tomorrow's a new day. And I like there's a you mentioned something earlier when things don't go right, go left. Yes. So, you know, there's a whole lot of like little phrases. Be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be, because at the end of the day, have no regrets. You know, I, I have no regrets at the end of the day. I think when whenever, you know, I'm done with this life, it's like I did everything I wanted to do that. I did everything that I could do with the, with what I had and, you know, no regrets. Don't let life pass you by without pursuing what your dreams are. And just like your grandma, you will rest whenever you, you're dead. Descansas cuando te mueres. Yeah, that's right. Well, Sonia, I want to thank you for giving us your life's history and some of the advice that you would give to others that are listening. I will have your contact information in the show notes in case anyone is interested in contacting you to get involved, to be placed in the path of opportunity, to find out uh, how they can get involved in community service in Houston and how they can uh, put themselves on the path to bigger and better things. Awesome, Victor. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, you we have known each other a very long time and it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to what's in the future.